Thank you, Brian, for your gracious hospitality and uh, for your warm welcome as a church to us uh, last night and again this morning. Uh, it is a privilege to be with you. Uh, you know, I think I know why it is you like my book, and it's because I feel the spirit of that book here already. In many ways, I feel as though, though my message and uh, seminar afterwards on the missional church is somewhat redundant. Uh, you get it. And um, I loved your service today. My wife and I were sitting here basking in it, loved the liturgy, loved the prayer, and uh, just have a sense of your sense of mission uh, to the world. And uh, that lovely quote from Bonhoeffer at the start, uh, the church is the church only when it exists for others, not dominating but helping and serving. It must tell men of, uh, and women of every calling what it means to live for Christ, to exist for others. Uh, in many ways, that's a summation of the concept of the missional church. I'm so glad to be here. This is, believe it or not, I am Scottish. My accent is probably a, a mixture of a number of things. It's a little bit of a Heinz's 57 varieties. Um, I've lived in Canada now for 30 years, so I'm sure there's a bit of a Canadian twang there too. Um, I grew up in Africa, in uh, Rhodesia, as it was then, Zimbabwe as it is now. And uh, so I have an accent from there. But my childhood, some of it, my childhood was spent in Scotland. My parents are Scottish. And so that's what I think of. Uh, and to actually be in a Presbyterian church makes me feel so much at home. And do <laughs> you know how I know this is a Presbyterian church? Is when you say the Lord's Prayer, you use the words debt and debtors, not trespasses. That says something about the Scots and money, I think, but I'm not sure. <laughs> Let us read the, the Word of God in John 20, 19 to 23. <clears throat> On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Shalom. After he said this, they showed them, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. So he stands in his risen power and says, Shalom. He stands as one crucified but now risen, and says, Shalom. Then verse 21, again Jesus said, Peace be with you, Shalom again. This time the, the, the force of the words Shalom are not so much with regard to receiving it, but to disseminating it to the world. And here Jesus gives what I've called the greatest commission. It's the Trinitarian commission. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. So as Jesus stands right in the middle of this, the first church, on, uh, in some senses, its birthday, certainly the birthday of the new creation, he gives us a Trinitarian commission and defines us in light of the Trinity. You are sent persons because God has sent his Son and God has sent his Spirit because you're in the Son and you're in the Spirit and the Spirit is in you. You are, every one of you, and as church, the missional people of God. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. This is what made that an experiential reality in their lives. They were birthed um, into the life of the Trinity by the Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Growing up, I, especially in Scotland, I fell in love with soccer. My grandfather was a professional soccer player in Scotland. He played for Hearts and Motherwell and Wraith Rovers. 
And um, so I really enjoy soccer. I, I love to play now, um, but I'm afraid what's in my head to do and what my body can deliver are not the same thing. I was playing squash a few years ago, and a friend of mine showed up with a T-shirt that said, the older I get, the better I was. <laughs> so when soccer comes on TV, or even an ad comes on TV about soccer, I'm all eyes. Um, my wife and I try not to sit in restaurants with uh, any sport around, especially soccer. But there's one particular ad that caught my attention a few years ago. It's one in which stars like Beckham, Ronaldo, Ronaldinho, and others are uh, hamming it up with the ball, as only they can do, and they're, they're playing keepy-uppy with the ball. And the, the ad ends with Beckham doing an overhead kick, and the ball lands in the back of the net. And then the caption comes up, impossible is nothing. As I think about the little community of disciples depicted in our passage today, that would be a good thing to write over this little passage. Impossible is nothing. Because when it comes to starting a worldwide religious movement, these 11 might have been voted the least likely to make it happen. They're behind locked doors for fear. And... Whilst on the one hand, this is a a wonderful celebration, I think this is John's picture. John works with metaphors. This is John's picture of the church for us in John 20. Jesus standing in the midst of this little community makes them the church. But prior to Jesus, Jesus standing there and transforming them, they would be the least likely and really impossible is what we might write, write over this, 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 this group. Impossible. Not impossible is nothing, but impossible. By the time Jesus is finished with them, We could aptly write, impossible is nothing. And I want to know what goes on in this passage that brings about this transformation. Because in many ways, I think the church in the West today is a lot like that little community of disciples. And that we are um, at a low ebb. I'm not sure if you're aware, we sometimes talk about sending missionaries from our churches in the West here, North America and Europe, Uh, to other places of the world. The truth is that 70% of the world's Christians live south and east. We're only 30% of the church. And in most Western countries, the church is actually not growing. And we live in the post-Christian age. We feel that in Canada. It's perhaps not not quite as bad as Europe, although Montreal might be in that category. And uh, there is a sense, not only that we are post-Christian in Canada, but, but perhaps there's an anti-Christian sentiment that pervades our culture. And to some extent, I'm sure you've experienced that. By the way, we feel very at home here in Portland, uh, Vancouver and Portland, a lot alike. Our weather is alike. We have slightly more rainfall than you. Um, what people smoke is also alike. Um, <coughs> um, and just the general ethos and relaxed feel of Portland, uh, we can relate with that a lot. But the church in the West is a lot like this little metaphor of 11 people behind closed doors going nowhere. Curved in on themselves. Why are we like that as the Western church? For two reasons, I would suggest. First of all, because we are not good at contextualizing the gospel for our world. Secondly, because we are so enculturated ourselves, we are so influenced by the culture that we become almost indistinguishable from the culture. So that the values of modernity and the values of postmodernity have become our values without even knowing it. Things like 
the separation of faith and reason, uh, the privatization of belief, uh, individualism. These are some of the values of modernity that have characterized us. Consumerism, what Brueggemann calls, we are, uh, uh, um, we are an acquisitive society of production and consumption. And if that's true of our society, it's somewhat become true of the church. Life in the church in North America is often defined by personalities. And if we have a great personality as a pastor, then our churches are full. And if not, they're not full. And we tend to come to church for the wrong reasons. We come to the church for the pastor rather than to encounter the living Christ. We come to church to receive rather than to give. Of course, we do receive. We receive the word as it's preached to us. The words of man become the words of God in a wonderful way that nourishes us. And the sacrament is so important, the Lord's Supper, so important for us to build us up. But it would be wonderful if we could turn things around and begin to come to church for God and then to be the church for the world rather than for ourselves. Postmodernity has some good values and some not-so-good values. Postmodernity has deconstructed reason and meta-narratives so that there are no meanings in the big stories uh, for our, our, our millennials in many ways. Some have taken to the despair of hedonism. Both modernity and postmodernity have some good things about them, by the way. Uh, modernity, for example, I'm, I'm not sure we would, uh, we would really want to go back to an era when there are no lights and no medical care. There's lots of good things about science that we should relish. And similarly with postmodernity, which has deconstructed uh, reason in a way that's actually more consonant with the Christian faith and so on. One of the wonderful things I'm excited about is presenting the gospel, the unchanging gospel uh, in the midst of this culture and telling a big story, a big story that is not an oppressive meta-narrative, a big story that gives a place in the sun to all the little stories, as Chris Wright expresses that in his book. The chief problem of our culture today actually is not so much modernity or postmodernity. I would argue that it's fragmentation. And I didn't come up with that myself. Jonathan Wilson has written a book on this. We are a fragmented culture. If you confront someone in the street and ask them what they think about various things, um, there isn't the coherence to that, to what they say by and large. Rather, it's a fragmented culture in which we live. And into that culture, uh, we are called to bring the gospel. Unfortunately, that culture has infiltrated our church. And therefore, we are weak, and we are trapped behind locked doors, just like this community. And as long as we're like that, you may as well write the word impossible over us. And then, Jesus comes and stands in the middle. And he breathes on them. And he constitutes the church. And he gives them shalom and they receive shalom by his risen presence among them and by the reminder of his death among them. And as he stands as risen one, he speaks, reminding me of the fact that we come together as the church, we speak the word of God. And as he stands there with his hands and shows us the signs of the cross, I have a reminder of the fact that what we do as the church every Sunday, or as often as we do it, is we break the bread and we drink the cup. 
And Christ becomes central. And I want to tell you folks that if we're going to have shalom in our lives that we can share with others, we need afresh to make Christ central. And understand we come, we are constituted by His presence here. We come to encounter Him here. And He's the one who restores us and gives us shalom that we might share that with others. And as we partake afresh of the, the, the cup and the bread, we are um, afresh drawn into union with Him and empowered for mission to the world. We receive shalom in order that we might uh, disseminate shalom uh, to others. People, after this occasion, especially after the day of Pentecost, see, when Jesus breathes on them in this passage, I suspect that the Holy Spirit doesn't come in the fullest way that we understand that until the day of Pentecost. Jesus is breathing over them symbolically. And after the day of Pentecost, the Spirit actually comes, and the church is constituted, and things begin to change. The catalytic impact of this little community, by the time it's empowered by the Spirit in Acts chapter 2, does things that are beyond imagination. But they really happened. They ultimately, through the church, shalom was brought to the ancient and medieval world. And I'm covering a vast swath of history here just for the sake of time. In all kinds of ways, shalom came to the world through the Christian church. Christianity is often attacked for various reasons historically. One of the things that's not often emphasized is that Christianity brought things like the liberation of women, the humanization of children to culture, that it was the church that built hospitals for the first time. It was the church that brought education to that world. Um, It was the church that brought architecture. It was the church that brought science. I don't have time to be on this at any length, but I I want to argue and state this, uh, make this statement without really much fear of contradiction, and that is that the Christian worldview is such as to... Um, there was no other culture in the ancient history of the world like the Christian culture in terms of openness to science. And in fact, I would argue that Christianity birthed modern science. Unfortunately, modern science became a rebellious teenager and distance itself from the church. So those are some of the shalom influences of the church as a result of Christ coming to stand in the midst of his church and disseminating shalom, or delivering shalom to his people. And then they disseminated it to the world. It's not not all a numbers game, but I just want to share with you just the remarkable growth that happened from this time, from 11 to 120 at the time of Pentecost, and 5,000 by Acts chapter 4, and Rodney Stark, a sociologist, says that by 40 A.D. there were 1,000 Christians, there were 25,000 by A.D. 100, and there were 5 to 7.5 million by the start of the 4th century. Impossible is nothing with God. How did this happen? There are five dynamics in this passage that explain how that happened, and I don't have time to go in in detail to all five of them. You can read my book if you'd like, and uh, whatever I miss out, you can, uh, you can fill in the blanks with that. I want to really focus on the very first one. I'll just tell you what the five are, first of all. First of all, Jesus comes to stand in the center. 
And uh, his risenness among them constitutes the church and brings shalom to them that they could receive. Um, And so I'm going to argue that a fresh awareness of the risen Christ in our midst will bring the kind of renewal that will make us the missional people of God. Secondly, Jesus stands there as one crucified, freshly crucified, and uh, it's in the midst of not just seeing him risen, but seeing him as one who's been crucified, that their transformation occurs. They're transformed as they're reminded of his redemptive nature and all that he's accomplished by those nails in his, uh, the marks of the nails in his hands and his side. And had I time, I would like to point out that the Lord's Supper, which you celebrate this morning, I believe is the ultimate cure for consumerism. Because when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we say Jesus is the center. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we feed on Christ. And we make him ultimate. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're caught up afresh um, into our union with him. And we're taken up into the ascended Christ afresh and made one with him and restored with all our passion to be the missional people of God. Thirdly, Jesus repeats the words shalom to them, and this time he's commissioning them. He's not calming them this time, he's commissioning them. And he's commissioning them in three ways. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you, and so he brings to them the truth of the Trinity. Not in so many words, the fullness of the doctrine of the Trinity will not be spelled out until the Council of Nicaea in AD 325, but it is surely believed by the New Testament church. And Jesus is saying to them, you know what? The Father sent me. That word sent in Latin is the word missio. And uh, as I am the mission, uh, as I am the mission of the Father to the world, now because you're going to be one with me, you're going to continue my missio into the world. In other words, mission is going to be possible because it won't be you. You'll be empowered by the life of the Trinity. You'll be in me. And then secondly, he breathes the Spirit upon them to make that a living reality so that they could be assured it would not be so much them, but it did involve them. They were real agents, but it was the power of the Holy Spirit upon them who would use them and continue the work of the missional God, continue the Missio Dei, if you like. Uh, Right on. In, in terms of God's purposes of being missional to the world. So the third one is the Trinity, and the fourth one is the work of the Spirit. And then finally, uh, he says, um, he says, if you forgive the sins of anyone, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. This is an amazing privilege. He's simply saying to them, I want to give you an amazing uh, grace. And that is that you're going to be a community which is hospitable to sinners. You're going to be a community of hospitality, yes, calling people to discipleship, but you're going to be not a community of people who have it all together. I don't want a community of Pharisees. I want a community of real people, of broken people, of sinful people, who know they can come to church even when they've blown it who can come to church even in the midst of all their imperfections as we've been praying in your confessional prayer, and who can, every time they come, make confession and then hear the words of absolution as we heard them today. You are forgiven. I want to tell you that in our culture, 
where there's incredible license morally. We shouldn't imagine for a moment that people aren't feeling guilt. They just have lots of ways to mask it. One of the great secrets of the Christian church is that we are we, we recognize with reality that we're sinners. And we invite people to come as they are, to come in all their brokenness, in order that they might be forgiven and begin to be formed again by Christ's grace. These are the five things. I want to return to the first one for just a moment. There's something wonderful about Jesus standing here in risen power. The significance of Jesus standing in John 20, the day of his, the, the, the evening of his resurrection, or the day of his resurrection, is wonderfully significant. N.T. Wright has commented that this environment, the atmosphere here, one, is definitely one of new creation. So, so in other words, there's something more than just, aha, he's risen, he is the Lord. I mean, that's wonderful enough, isn't it? Someone has risen from the dead, and he is the Lord of life and death. He's the Lord of glory, and we worship him because he's the risen Christ. That's the distinctiveness of the Christian message. We worship a risen Christ. There's also something wonderful about the fact of the, 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 what that resurrection does for us in terms of transforming us and justifying us and sanctifying us. Paul says he was raised again for our justification. And so the risenness of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and I know this is not Easter Sunday, this is uh, Palm Sunday, but you know, I, I thought about this passage in light of Palm Sunday. This is the first time when the king takes his place in the midst of the community. He's rejected by that other community, and now he's taking his place in the midst of this little community, and he does so in risen power. And his resurrection, there's so much for us to celebrate about that, and that's the message of the gospel which we proclaim. But there's more to it that gives character to Christian mission. And just follow with me for just a moment. These are my final thoughts. There are three things in this passage that tell me that more is going on than meets the eye. And this is so typical of John, the way he writes. First of all, it's the first day of the week. It's the first day of the new creation era. It's Sunday. Secondly, do you remember when Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden? They did so, and there was an evening breeze. Now what happens in this passage? There's a fresh breeze. It's the wind of the Spirit. Old creation, new creation. And thirdly, do you remember that on, in Genesis chapter 2, God breathes into the nostrils of the first man, Adam, and he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and man becomes a living soul? What happens in this passage? Jesus, as God, as Yahweh, is breathing into his disciples to make them the new humanity in him. This is wonderful. Now, why do I mention that? It's not just exciting in terms of the flow of Scripture. There's something wonderful here about what mission means. What mission means is helping people to recover their humanity. What mission means is not just forgiveness of sins. 
The message of the Christian gospel is not just forensics. That is, here's my sin, Christ has taken care of them, I'm not forgiven, I'm not justified before God. We sometimes preach the gospel as if that's the whole gospel. The gospel does not begin there. That's a consequence of the gospel. It begins with God wanting to make uh, persons who have um, been broken, who were once in the fullness of the image of God, that image of God has become tarnished, our humanity has been tarnished, we become something less than human, and as a result of the gospel, God wants us to make us wants to make us his children and wants to restore us to the fullness of our humanity. The Christian gospel and Christian mission is not just the Great Commission and bringing people to Jesus. And it is not even just the matter of social justice which is important and loving our neighbor, the Great Commandment. The Christian gospel recapitulates the cultural mandate of Genesis 1 and 2 in which human beings were called to care for God's creation and to work in God's creation in participation with him. Genesis 1 and 2 do not describe a finished creation. They describe a good creation, but not a finished creation. God creates, and on the sixth day, he takes the baton and he passes it on to Adam and Eve and says, look, go and finish my creation. Participate with me as I bring creation to to fullness. And actually, that will not happen until the last Adam steps onto the stage of history. And in the last Adam, you and I are recovered, not just as justified sinners, but as human persons who are called to participate with God in his work in the world by caring for creation. Why is it that Christian people are often the last to sign up when it comes to care for the environment? When that's the first command of God ever given to us as human persons. Care for my creation. Look after it. Tend it. Part of that commandment was the command to work. And being human, part of being human means the dignity of work. And when people suffer from lack of work and unemployment, uh, it hurts so much because it it, it goes right to the heart of what we are as human persons. We aren't birthed just to work, but we are birthed to work. We are made to work. And in our work, one of the most exciting things I think about the Christian gospel is that it makes a difference to the way we work. What if when we work, we're not just working, and not just working for our earthly bosses, but we're working with our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our ultimate boss, and that we have this sense, this is the most important piece, that we have this sense that somehow God is making sense of our work, and our work is a participation in towards the fullness of God's new creation. We might work in a different way. One of the sad things about the Christian church is often we have a theology only for one day of the week. One of my colleagues, Paul Stevens, has written a book called The Other Six Days. It's all about a theology of work. And I commend it to you. It's a a good book to read. Buy mine first. Just kidding. (laughs) Uh, Just kidding. It's a wonderful book that you shouldn't be without, really. Let me bring this to a close. I believe there's hope for the Christian church. I gave you the bad news. Here's the good news. Christ still stands in the center as the risen one. Christ still stands with his hands stretched wide with nail-scarred hands. 
invites us to come and feed on him. And Christ afresh comes to us and says, as I am the sent one of the Father, I want to include you in my sentness so that mission in all of its wonderful complexity, mission is participating in what I'm already doing. It's not you having to dream it up. And he releases the resources of his Holy Spirit to us. And I invite you afresh to open your heart for a fresh breath of the Spirit in your life to transform you, to give you eyes for a needy world, to give you a heart for those who are being prayed for today, the poor and the marginalized. God doesn't just want them to be saved. He wants them to become fully human, and you and I can do something about that. We offer them forgiveness as well, and we offer them hospitality. The reason I have hope, a defiant hope, for the Christian church is all these things, the dynamics of the missional God who makes his church missional. That's the only hope for the re-evangelization of the West. Let us pray. May the word of the living God craft within our souls fresh hope and transform us. May the Spirit of God freshly empower us for our mission to the world as this church and for each person, for each one of us. I pray in Christ's name.